We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge apply. Ctmobile.com. Hour number two of a hump day home and home, a radio.com sports original round brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Try ZipRecruiter for free right now. ZipRecruiter.com slash Enter coming up later in this hour. We will talk to our friends uh, to check in on the Thursday night game between the Seahawks and the Rams. One of the better Thursday nighters that we have on the schedule. Uh, ben Arthur will join us from the Seattle Post Intelligencer to break down a terrific start from Russell Wilson. Is it the best start to his career? We'll talk about that in just a bit, as well as the Major League Baseball playoffs underway. They have a new ad that came out right before the postseason started that claims we play loud. It's young. It's enthusiastic. It's brash. Is the game really as that ad portrays? But we start with the NCAA and a crack in the dam of their business model. Where are we headed now that California has signed into law the Fair Pay to Play Act? Gavin Newsom signed that with LeBron James two days ago. And let's hear from Gavin Newsom about what this means moving forward. Uh, Once someone does it, it makes it possible for others to believe it could be done uh, in their respective jurisdictions. So I think invariably you're just going to see, I think, dozens of other uh, states and legislative leaders in those states introduce similar legislation. And that's why this is a giant wake-up call for the NC2A. Is it Ross Tucker joining us now from Pennsylvania? A giant wake-up call for the NCAA, or will they continue to put on their earmuffs and their blindfold and fight this thing? Or will they begin to work with states and schools like we're seeing in California and try to find some happy medium? Because if they don't, it will be a disaster. Well, so here's the thing. They're already talking about in Pennsylvania. Three legislators have presented and talked about, you know, a, a potential similar act here, similar bill here in Pennsylvania. This is going to happen. The train is on the tracks. And so I think the NCAA will stop with the rhetoric from guys like Gene Smith about how California schools won't be in the NCAA, and they will quickly pivot to, all right, what should we make the rules? Since this is going to happen everywhere, what can we come up with that tries to be the best solution where this rule is allowed? That's where they're going to go. I mean, to me, Dave... It reminds me a little bit of the NFL with gambling. Like, it's hilarious to me how much money over the years the NFL spent to say we don't want legalized gambling. It would it would ruin the game. It would go to the integrity of the game, and we can't have that. I mean, they spent millions of dollars fighting legalized gambling. And now that it happened, they're like, all right, so we're starting a. We, we've got the Caesars. This we've got this partnership. We've got that. It's like 
they immediately did a 180 and are starting to figure out ways to monetize it. I think the NCAA fought it as long as they could fight it. And now they realize that it, it's, it's over their head. What they have on their side, Dave, is time. You know, this bill does not take effect until 2023. That gives the NCAA a lot of time to change their rules to make this legal everywhere, as opposed to saying California schools can't be part of the NCAA or they can't. That's a joke. That's never going to happen. That was a veiled threat and a bluff that the California governor called them out on that just makes them look silly in my mind. This is happening. Now they got to come up with a, a way in which the other side, if you will, will accept the parameters under which this pay-to-play for likeness and endorsement will happen. You say they have time. Maybe. Maybe they don't. In New York, there's a state senator who has his proposal on the table that would allow profiting from name, likeness, and image, but would also force the New York colleges to pay a certain portion to the players. So this one's entirely different, requires colleges to pay the players. And here's the real key. If they get this through, it would be rushed through and go into law in 2020 as a next college football season. That one, I have to say, I hope does not pass because that would cause utter chaos too quick for the NCAA to figure things out. Haven't heard much from Mark Emmert. Would be nice if the president of the NCAA were more of a public face on this. For whatever reason, he is not Gene Smith of Ohio State, the athletic director there is. Let's listen to his side of it. Yeah, I would not if, if there's... If, there, if the rules are different in different states like they are, I would not. I mean, that's, that's not who we are. I'd, I'd stay, in, stay with those states and those schools that are like we are in the NCAA, so I wouldn't. But the 206 bill is wide open endorsements. So um, you know, there's pop-up ads that are unregulated. There's, there's, you know, there's wide open industries that are unregulated. Um, student athletes, we, we're Coke school, student athletes could do Pepsi, we're Nike school, student athletes could do Adidas. It's wide open. And so that, that, that has no um, regulations and no restrictions or no best practices. It's got, yeah, that's a scary movie. Okay, to my read of the California bill, he's wrong. I, I'll have to take another read through it. But I do not believe a Nike athlete could have a deal at an Adidas school. Pretty sure that's in the language there in California. He is right, though. If they don't regulate this thing, it's going to be an utter disaster. You're going to have some billionaire who says, hey, it's worth $3 million for Tua or the next Tua that comes along, perhaps Bronny James. You're going to have Bronny James, who uh, will be a college athlete at least for one year, Signature car dealership, how much is that worth to a billionaire? Um, Ross Tucker, you made a joke yesterday about Princeton could be the national champs if, in fact, this goes nationwide. Uh, it was a great joke, but I thought more about that. And if you're Alabama, I'm not sure this helps you. 
you already get everybody you want in the country. Same goes for Ohio State and about five other programs. It will be interesting to see how many smaller, less profitable, less money-making schools can find one very wealthy booster. There are billionaires out there that really want their college to win. Might a smaller school benefit more than a big school in terms of how much they could rise up with one very rich booster? Well, and that's been the argument. That's why I wore a Princeton shirt today. That and because <laughs> it's a day that ends in Y. So I usually wear a Princeton right. thing if it's a day that ends in Y. Uh, we've talked about this before. They give me a bunch of free gear, and I like it. I wear it. I don't know. So, But here's my point. I am counting on Jeff Bezos to lead us to the national championship. What does the guy have, $100 billion or something? Jeff, buddy, let's just put a billion towards recruiting the best athletes with some Amazon marketing and likeness guarantees. And it, what's interesting, too, is, you know, at some of these schools, these guys are already getting some money. I'm with you, Dave. I, I wonder if, and you know what, on some level, I guess it's already happened with what Phil Knight has done for Oregon and their facilities and uniforms and what T. Boone Pickens did for Oklahoma State. So I suppose, Dave, on some level, schools could already do this, right? Like, Bezos could donate the money to have an even bigger, better stadium for Princeton football or even better facilities, which right now is really where the money goes. The money goes a lot of time. Now, there's some underhanded stuff that goes to the players, but the money, for the most part, goes to facilities because it's reinvesting in your product. It's because the better the facilities you have, the better players you get because they're wowed by it when they're getting recruited and they choose to go there because they, they want the best facilities. Since they can't get paid, they want the, the iPad in the locker with the lounge chair and the massage chair and all that stuff. It's really unbelievable. I mean, colleges have better facilities than the NFL because the NFL can actually pay you. They, they pay you. Like, you'd rather have the money then putting the money into better facilities, that's not going to sway you for whether or not you go to a certain NFL team. How much money they're giving you is going to sway. So colleges literally have better facilities than NFL. Rather than all the money going into those, you wonder how much of that money is now funneled directly to the players. But here's the thing. It's not the schools that can give the money to the players. It has to be these outside entities these marketing and likeness companies that feel like they're going to get value out of it, which is, the whole thing is, I mean, anyone, I think, Dave, that acts like they know what's going to happen or how this would play out, I think they're kidding themselves. I think we all have ideas or thoughts on what might happen, but the reality is, that's based on what the rules are now, or what we think these new rules will be. But the NCAA is going to have a lot of people sit down and spend a lot of time on this to try to come up with some type of solution that makes sense for everybody. Yeah, they are a long way from finding any common ground on that, even inside the conferences. Uh, the Pac-12 put out a statement not very happy about this new bill. And then Chip Kelly, the coach of UCLA, 
says it's the right thing to do. It doesn't cost the universities. It doesn't cost the NCAA. I would imagine the NCAA model has to change over time. And he added, I think this is progress. So it's interesting to see Chip Kelly go against his own conference. At least he is one of the coaches that seems progressive on this and seems to understand where it needs to be. We're going to see if we can check in some of these lawmakers over the next couple of days, including that state senator from New York who wants that bill to go into effect next college football season. Uh, coming up in just a bit, though, we're going to check in with Grant Paulson from 106.7 The Fan in D.C. to talk about baseball fever taking over the nation's capital, at least hopefully making up for everything that's happening there with the Washington Redskins. That's in just about a minute, Ross. Yeah, and he was at the game. He was hugging people, so I guess he wasn't there in a professional capacity. I guess he was just there as a fan. That's nice. I wish I could be a fan sometimes, just like I wish I would get more people to hire people using ZipRecruiter. If you haven't tried it yet, you're missing out. My wife has a family business. Hiring is not easy these days. It can be a slow process. That's why Cafe El Toro COO Dylan Miskowitz needed to hire a director of coffee for his organic coffee company. But when he was having trouble finding qualified applicants, he knew where to go. He knew what was up. He switched to ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. Its technology identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. So you get qualified candidates fast. Dylan posted his job on ZipRecruiter and said he was impressed by how quickly he had great candidates apply. He also used ZipRecruiter's candidate rating feature to filter his applicants so he could focus on the most relevant ones. And that's how Dylan found his new director of coffee in just a few days. With results like that, it's no wonder four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. See why ZipRecruiter is effective for businesses of all sizes. Try ZipRecruiter for free at our web address ziprecruiter.com slash enter that's ziprecruiter.com slash e-n-t-e-r ziprecruiter.com slash enter ziprecruiter it is the smartest way to hire tonight baseball playoffs continue it's the rays at the a's the 30th and 23rd ranked payroll teams in major league baseball and that Baseball has to love, and I hope you, the fans, love seeing smaller market, lower spending teams still finding their way into the postseason while teams like the Boston Red Sox and the Chicago Cubs are sitting at home. That's part of the beauty right now in baseball. And last night, it was a thriller in the nation's capital, but it felt like a familiar dread after they went down two to nothing. After about five minutes of the baseball game, Max Scherzer rocked for a two-run shot, and it felt like here we go again. Then came 20-year-old Juan Soto to the plate, and this happened on 106.7 The Fan in D.C. 20-year-old Juan Soto in a spot to be a game-changer here. Hater the set, the kick, here it comes. Swing and a line drive, base hit right field. Taylor scores from third. Stevenson around third. The ball missed it right field. 
that's an outstanding call on 106.7 The Fan in D.C. And what a start to the Major League Baseball postseason. A man who witnessed it, Grant Paulson, joining us now. 106.7 The Fan in D.C. Grant, good to see you. Dave Briggs, Ross Tucker. How does a 20-year-old celebrate with champagne when he's not yet legal to drink, my friend? It's a great question. It's the second time they've had to answer that question with Juan Soto. I don't know if they do it like my parents did on New Year's Eve when I was a kid years ago and they give me the fake looking champagne that's not alcoholic <laughs> or if they just let it ride because he's going to be 21 later this month in October and he's the mayor of D.C. this morning. But Soto's been amazing for this team all year long. He bats clean up. He hit 30 plus homers and drove in 100 runs. And really, since he got called up to the Nationals midway through last season as a 19 year old, maybe been their best player other than Anthony Rendon. It's unquestionable whether or not he's their MVP over the last year and a half is a debate. But he's special, and the country found out about it last night. Grant, I saw one of your tweets at some point where you said Soto should be president of all countries. And I don't think you were referring to how good of a player he is. What did you mean by that? Well, he's just a super good guy. This is a kid who came over to the Nationals after being signed out of the Dominican Republic and within a handful of months had already learned English comfortable enough to do interviews uh, without the Nationals translator. And it's not a knock on the guys who do use the translator, many of whom have been in the big leagues for nine, ten years. But it was important to Soto, who told us on the show in an interview he's done uh, in English with us a couple times now. He first got here and he would go out to eat and he would just point to menus on the McDonald's item. And that was how he got the food that he wanted. But he, he wanted to learn English. His sister, I think, was over here with him and helped him a whole lot. Uh, but he, he's just an immensely likable good person he's got a huge smile and he's a guy i remember still the, the first time we had him on the show i asked him he never really takes a day off in fact if you look this year at his games log he plays every single day for the nationals and, and we were asking him about whether or not at some point they should maybe give him a day and he said no no i'm good i said you got to be tired and he said I'm, I'm tired of being poor and he talked about wanting to help his family and, and bring his parents uh, here to Washington, D.C. And last night, his father was on the field, literally tackling him after the game on national television. And one of the, the coolest moments I've seen in a while, and it, it doesn't happen, honestly, if that guy that comes up with a big hit is, is you know, a 30-year-old or someone who's been in the big leagues forever. But when a, a couple of years ago, you were playing in A-ball, he really didn't play much double-A, and he played no triple-A, and he got called up. Uh, it's an amazing story. So I also saw the tweet, Grant, where you said after the hit by Soto, you hugged the guy behind you because you were so excited, and it was Soto's dad. Where, like, you got to tell yeah. me the story. Where where were you? How did you find yeah. out it was Soto's dad? Like, I'm all confused. All right, so it's a good question, Ross. So we were broadcasting, obviously, all day long. And when you broadcast, you know this, you kind of wear different hats. It's a, it's a whole different ball game. You're in a professional capacity. So, like, I brought a change of clothes for after the game. We're analyzing the game from both sides, the Nats, the Brewers, talking about how good Woodruff's going to be and how deep the Brewers' bullpen is and how Josh Hader's untouchable. So I, I throw on, you know, a Nats cap, and I, I bought pretty good seats last night, um, not right behind home plate, but behind home plate a little ways up. In an area that it turned out, I was sitting around a lot of player family folks, as I would find out as the game went on. Well, I had no idea, but right after that hit, 
Soto comes through with a hit that if you're a D.C. sports fan, has eluded this team literally in every playoff run as they've been ousted in, in every elimination game they've ever played, dating back to 2012. And so I'm, I'm high-fiving the guys I went with, and we're hanging out, and there's this guy behind me who was, like, just emotional and going nuts, you know, hopping around, very Ron Burgundy, I don't even know what to do with my arms, kind of just, like, all limb shaking. And I just gave this dude a hug and didn't think anything of it. Well, like, 10 minutes later, on the field, Soto's being interviewed with his arm around the guy, and it turns out to be his dad. So it was just funny that right after the hit, like the first stranger in this moment of euphoria in the, a ballpark of 40,000 people going nuts that I turned around and, and he like reaches out for this hug and this emotional embrace, it turns out to be Juan Soto's dad. So it was pretty cool. Pretty cool moment indeed. Talking with Grant Paulson, 106.7, the Nats, as they called it yesterday, the fan, as it, I think it's back to, to today. Um, can you take us to that dread, though, that feeling that may have existed before that 2 nothing in like five minutes and the memories of postseason collapse still fresh on your minds? Yeah, the entire night the entire ballpark and I give fans a lot of credit. I was on our sister station um, intercom station in Milwaukee yesterday in the morning. And they asked me what to expect from the crowd. And I said, well, as long as you know, Scherzer doesn't get victimized by the long ball, which has been a bugaboo here late in the year and they don't fall behind by three or four runs. I think the crowd will be great. If they fall behind. There's going to be angst and nerves and people will feel like it's a woe is me. Here we go again. Elimination game scenario. Well, that all played out with Scherzer giving up two homers and three runs and in two innings. But the crowd was sensational, really, start to finish. I was amazed. But there was a feeling of the entire night. We've seen this before. This, this movie's been played in this movie theater. I think for me, that for about three hours, I was thinking they're going to get second-guessed for starting Scherzer because Strasburg's been better down the stretch. He came out and shelved three innings, 34 pitches. Dominant relief was, was lights out, and Scherzer did give up the two home runs. But this team has been different all year. You know, I think last night, in a lot of ways, for your national audience, is an indicative performance and the embodiment of the 2019 Nationals. And Ryan Zimmerman, who's coming off the bench now, who's the record holder in almost every individual category of Nationals history, their first draft pick, their longest tenured player. He said on the show recently that there's never really a time on the bench where they don't think they can come back. There was literally a game they were down six runs in the ninth inning and scored seven to win against the Mets a little over a month ago. And they've done this all year. They were 19-31 and 31 with the second-to-last record in the National League behind only uh, everyone in their division and head of only the Marlins, and they made the playoffs. And so while I think most people were expecting a loss throughout the night when they were down, you always knew they had a shot. The fact that Hader was coming in to throw 97, that they were going left-on-left left against Soto, a lot of the variables and analytics told you this isn't going to happen. But there is something unique about this team, and they'll put that to the test one more time now against the Dodgers, who are superior and waiting for them in Los Angeles. You know what's crazy, Grant? First of all, I love that you bought tickets and just got to be a fan for the game. That's amazing. That's very, very cool. Uh, that's a truly unique experience. It is unbelievable, Grant, the difference between regular season baseball and postseason baseball. I maintain, and said earlier, I think it's the biggest dichotomy between regular season and postseason in, of any of the sports. Would you agree? Yeah, I think so. I, I do. You know, maybe if you ask me in a different season, I might feel differently. I'm not sure. But here's what I'd say about that, Ross. I think in 
in baseball, every time a runner's at first base, it feels like a rally. You know, every time a guy walks or gets a base hit and he's at first base, it feels like something's brewing. Where in a normal game, a runner at first, an out or two, is, is a nothing burger. I mean, you're, you're a pitch away from being back in the dugout. Every pitch is just elevated. But the, the ballpark is unrecognizable in terms of the energy, which is palpable, and the electricity. You know, Nationals Park has drawn some ire, not only from me and folks on the, on the radio station here, but from columnists in town throughout the year. Attendance has been down. The environment is not typically in the regular season been great. But last night was a you know, college football SEC under the lights, seven versus four ranks game it really in terms of the electricity it was it was nuts there was nothing about last night that felt like the regular season and i think you saw a couple times where things that would not have happened in the regular year did trent grisham in right field uh, misplaying a ball that you give him 100 chances to, to play that ball in from right and it's a tie game instead of the that's taking a lead there's no error so yeah i'm with you i, I just think the the amount that every pitch matters and the way the games are managed. I mean, look no further than 50% of innings now go to the bullpen instead of starters. Managers manage with an urgency that in the regular season doesn't exist. Craig Council was running through his pen last night. Uh, it, it's it's very different. There's no doubt. Major League Baseball dropped in attendance by nearly a million people this season, so they have got to figure that out some way. Somehow, one of the cool moments last night you talked about the Soto hug with his dad was the image of a lightsaber. Presumably Han Solo was the reference there in the clubhouse afterwards. Was that its debut or has that been around uh, since Juan Soto started doing well? Uh, so, yes, Sean Doolittle had the lightsaber. Uh, he had a, a bobblehead actually earlier this year where he had a lightsaber on the bobblehead. He's a huge, huge Star Wars fan. Really well read. I mean, you'd call him nerdy if you wanted to a cerebral guy and a mark for Star Wars. So uh, that's kind of his shtick. They had a, a Obi Sean Kenobi. Kenobi. <laughs> I always box Obi Sean Doolittle. I get. I don't know. Whatever the Star Wars guy's name is, I'm not a Star Wars guy. Sean Obi Doolittle Sean Kenobi. Yeah, right. Whatever you want to do. Yeah. <laughs> so they had that bobblehead. That was the celebration. He's had it in his locker. I actually was talking to him this week. He's got a couple little trinkets like that in his locker. So he broke it out for the champagne celebration. He didn't do it. I was in the clubhouse for the champagne celebration after they clinched the playoffs uh, going back to the regular season. But I'll tell you, this team party's hard. And they have all year long. You know, People kind of poke fun a little bit at, at this clubhouse. But it's a super veteran-laden group. So I mentioned Ryan Zimmerman, who's 35. Sean Doolittle's 33. Their bench last night was made up of Brian Dozier, who – has been around the big leagues for several years. They've got Howie Kendrick, who's 35, and Kurt Suzuki, who's in his mid-30s. A lot of teams do not spend money on veterans. You know, They go with kids. They save on their payroll. Guys in their mid-30s are getting phased out of the game instead of getting those one- and two-year contracts. The Nats are zigging when everybody's zagging a little bit, and it's worked. I mean, their clubhouse is a bunch of, like, salt-to-the-earth 10-year veterans but you watch these parties of these guys who know what it's like to, to not get to play in these games. And it's, it's been really cool to see. Well, part of that is is letting Bryce Harper leave and go sign for $330 million with the Phillies. Uh, how do you explain that addition by subtraction? Well, look, any team with Bryce Harper on it, in my opinion, is going to be a better team, right? You lose 40 home runs, you lose a hundred RBI, 
And more than anything, I think people miss the presence he has in the lineup. It makes everyone around him better. You've got to pitch differently to the heart of the order when he's in it. He draws a million walks and he gets on base at a clip that's always going to be top five in his league. That having been said, their clubhouse is better off now. And people might take this as a knock against Bryce Harper, but it, it's really not that. You know, Harper is is Paul McCartney. He's one of the Beatles, right? He doesn't want to bring attention onto himself necessarily. Yes, sometimes with things he does on social media, he does. But he can't just be one of the guys. You're never going to be in a clubhouse with Bryce Harper where he's just the right fielder. And I think there were players in the clubhouse that that grinded on over the years that were kind of tired of that and exhausted by it. Now, you don't really have that. Rendon, who's the MVP of the team and maybe top three in MVP balloting in the National League with Yelich and Bellinger, is completely unassuming, doesn't really like doing much media stuff. In fact, finally got named an All-Star for the first time this year after kind of actively trying not to be for years and didn't go to the game. I mean, he's just a different kind of cat. Juan Soto's 20 and, and very accessible and, again, kind of still enjoys the attention and the, the media element of, of baseball. He's their second best player. Uh, they don't have a superstar. They don't have guys that have their own rules in the clubhouse. They don't have players that only you know, talk at certain times. Not that that was the case with Harper, but I think generally when you have more guys than not who are all operating with the same parameters, you're better off. And that's been the case for this Nationals group, in my opinion. I've talked to people in Philly in their front office who say that Harper's been the best teammate possible. And again, I think the things he controls, he tries to do well, but it's just different when he's in the clubhouse, especially last year when he was hitting free agency at year's end. There was a day-in, day-out cloud hanging over the team that everyone was asked about almost every series, about his future as each media market would come to town or, or you'd go visit them. And I think it really hurt the club. And there was a relief, you could tell, at spring training that that was no longer a thing. And they haven't had to deal with it. And I think they've been better off for it. Not to mention Soto, who is playing left field, Adam Eaton, who's playing right field, and Victor Robles, a plus-plus center fielder defensively, who's a great power speed guy who stole 28 bags this year and played maybe the best defense in the National League. They've got a really good outfield, maybe one of the top three or four in the sport, frankly. And certainly defensively, it came a long way. So losing Harper on and off the field was not only not a blow, it, it may have been a net positive in terms of being able to turn around and pay Patrick Corbin, who's going to start in game one against the Dodgers, $140 million that they wouldn't have been able to spend otherwise. Grant, I got to ask you, you're on the air uh, every day, midday show. Grant and Danny do a terrific job. Anybody that's into D.C. sports at all needs to check it out, radio.com app or radio.com. I had somebody tweet me last night when I mentioned I was watching the Nationals game and how young some of the guys looked. Gosh, Trey Turner looked like to me like he was in high school. But And they said, um, hard to believe the Redskins are number four in this town. Is that really true? Like, are, they, are I mean, you're there every day. Are the Redskins really the fourth team in that city now? I, I would say no to that, Ross. A couple things. So, first of all, no, they're not number four. They are, at this moment, though, a source of anger and disappointment in the sense that people don't want to hear about them. I mean, they're 0-4. They're going to be 0-5 after they play the Patriots on Sunday. Jay Gruden may lose his job this coming week. Their offense is anemic and really difficult to watch. 
They played their kid, Dwayne Haskins, who they've been screaming into a megaphone since we were talking in training camp, wasn't ready this past week without their starting center, Pro Bowl right guard, Pro Bowl left tackle, and top wide receiver, and he threw a pick six and three interceptions and was the first Redskin to be intercepted in return for a touchdown since Stan Humphreys in 1989. So that was supposed to invigorate the fan base and did the opposite. People are down on them. I mean, their approval rating couldn't be lower. Bruce Allen is enemy of the state number one. Dan Snyder has never really had a fan club here. So in that sense, if you're talking about who are people most disenfranchised with, you'd rank them fourth. The Wizards almost don't register, honestly. If you're looking at like some kind of Richter scale for sports, they'd be number four, and I don't think it's close. The Redskins, in my opinion, are always either number one or at the top. There's more people interested in them, positively or negatively. I think whoever said that's probably talking about whether or not people enjoy watching them. But in terms of interest, you're going to have more people tune in for a segment or click on a a download of a podcast on the Redskins than you are anything else. The Nationals, though, and the Capitals, who obviously won the Stanley Cup two seasons ago and debuted tonight against last year's champions, the St. Louis Blues. Those are the two teams. Think of it like four kids that you have, right? The Redskins are the mess up that you want to see get right, but just continues to get in trouble. And at some point you're deciding, to, I mean, do I, can I help this person anymore? Do I give up on them? The, the kids that are getting straight A's and doing everything correctly are the Nationals and the Capitals. And then the Wizards are like a, a black sheep or something that left the family a while ago and are living with a friend that no one knows exists anymore. So that's kind of the pecking order, I would say, in town. And then the last question, Grant, is just what can they do to change that in that city? I mean, it just feels like the erosion of the fan base. Do they have to fire Bruce Allen? If Haskins is good, can that turn it around? Like, what are they? What can they do to, to flip this script? Yeah, TV ratings, Ross, are way down for them. I mean, this is the first time in my life that they're getting beaten in TV ratings in this market, like by other games that are on head to head that don't involve the Redskins. I mean, it's ridiculous. Uh, the attendance, you've been at games, you were at the primetime game against the Bears. It's mostly visiting fans now, and the stadium, even with all those visiting fans, is not full. Look, it's going to take years of competing, I think, to bring certain fans back, but they can make a couple of moves almost immediately that would provide a jolt and a shot in the arm. The biggest thing they're going to have to do, in my opinion, and, and I'll never be the guy on the radio to call for anybody's job. I don't really play that game. I think it's it's terrible radio and it's unprofessional. But the, the move that is probably overdue at this point is that Bruce Allen, who's 59 and 91 in games that have been decided in the regular season while he's been running the Redskins, is probably going to have to be moved on from at some point. That will get fans back to at least believing the team has a chance, that they think, right or wrong, that he doesn't know what he's doing. And his track record before he got here was not particularly good. His track record here has been terrible. He has had almost a decade. He was hired in December of 2010, and here we are now coming up on December of, of 2019. So actually, December of 2009, he came in. He's coming up on 10 years. But I think that's the big move that they've got. That's the trick up their sleeve. And then the question is, if you move on from Gruden, what do you do? I think they have to make a splash move if they want to get people back in the stadium. Something crazy. They've got to go 10 and 100, John Gruden style, and try to lure Dabo Sweeney or Lincoln Riley. Or, I don't even know if it'll work, but something that will make fans excited. And I think it's going to take creativity, thinking big, just hiring like Mike McCarthy or, 
or some guy that gets fired somewhere else that you like is probably not going to do it anymore. Always surprised Dan Snyder doesn't look to sell this team. Paid $800 million for them. They are valued at $3 billion, according to Forbes. That businessman could make a massive profit if he were to move them. Grant Paulson, 106.7, the Nats or the fan. Good to have you on, my friend. Uh, best of luck in the postseason. Out there taking on the Dodgers should be a fun series. My pleasure. Thank you guys so much. Really appreciate it. All right, coming up in just a bit, we'll talk about Thursday night football, one of the best we have on the Thursday night slate, Seahawks and Rams. Why is Seattle number one in the NFL in primetime football games? We will ask Ben Arthur of the Seattle Post-Intelligencers as we preview the Seahawks matchup on Thursday night after a quick break. Monday Night Football was a stinker. Steelers, Bengals, winless. Thursday night should be a very good one. As good as we have on the slate. Seahawks and Rams in prime time. And why is Seattle better than any team in football? Yes, even the New England Patriots in prime time. Let's ask Ben Arthur of the Seattle post Intelligencer joins us now to preview this outstanding Thursday night matchup. Ben, good to see you. Dave Briggs, Ross Tucker. It is an amazing stat when you look at it. Seattle is 26-5-1 in prime time. They are 17-2 in prime time at home. Is that a fluky stat or something Pete Carroll is instrumental with? I definitely think it's just the culture, um, you know, the Seahawks have uh, installed, you know, with, with big games. I think you know, Pete Carroll's always just had a, you know, tendency to get his guys ready for big games. And we're actually asking the team uh, this, me and the other reporters, uh, yesterday, you know, talking to Russ, Russell Wilson, Bobby Wagner. I, I think kind of the big takeaway for me from them is that, you know, that they don't treat this like a primetime game. They, they treat it, treat it uh, like, like any other game, uh, you know, that they kind of have that same you know, mindset going into primetime games as they would any other game. So it's it's kind of kind of same deal. You know, you, you have to get the win, uh, you know, kind of, you know, focus up on that, doing 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 whatever you can to do that and not inflating the expectations of the game just because uh, you, you're un, under the, the spotlight of a of a night game. I think that that's kind of what it comes down to. Ben, we're a national show, so we got people all over the country that listen to us or watch us on the Radio.com app or Radio.com slash home. And some of them probably haven't really even seen much of the Seahawks this year. And if they did, it was probably that Saints loss at home since that was really the featured game. Four games in, can you kind of give us the, the Cliff Notes version of the, the good, the bad, and the ugly, I guess, from the Seahawks so far and where you think they're at? Yeah, the, the good, I, I think I'll kind of start with um, the defense. And, and on the defense, I mean particularly with the linebackers. Uh, the, the Seahawks, you know, have been a team that have, you know, liked to play, you know, nickel, um, you know, to, you know, counter, you know, passing attacks, you know, to cover receivers and and all that. But, you know, the, the Seahawks have probably their, their deepest linebacker core in the, uh, in the history of, you know, their, of the Pete Carroll era. They have, you know, obviously all pro 
uh, Bobby Wagner. They have KJ Wright and, you know, Michael Kendricks is a guy that they added uh, last season. And, you know, they, they haven't been going to nickel to, to counter passing attacks. They've been going, keeping that four, three base, those three linebacker sets. And they've actually had, you know, quite a lot of success. Um, you know, we know that those guys can, you know, stop the run, but they've actually been able to do quite a decent job uh, stopping receivers. They're athletic guys who can who can run uh, and cover in addition to their, you know, tackling prowess. So I think I'd kind of start with, you know, the Seahawks kind of bucking the trend, so to speak, uh, in, in terms of the defense on offense. I'd say they kind of have more offensive balance than they did a year ago. I think everyone knew last year that they just wanted to, you know, run the ball down your throat, but they've shown um, a more, more of a willingness in, uh, you know, with in the second season of uh, offensive coordinator, Brian Schottenheimer to throw the ball, um, you know, utilizing that, you know, incredible arm that uh, Russell Wilson has. We, we've seen them kind of utilize the quick passing game, finding the running backs out of the flat, you know, quick seam passes, um, all that. And so I, I think kind of, the base, the, the linebacker sets on defense and the, the quick passing on offense has kind of opened up some teams, uh, excuse me, has opened up some, some options for them. Uh, the bad, uh, they're still kind of starting game slow, kind of a, you know, a running joke around here is that the, the Seahawks get off to their slow start and make games, uh, you know, dramatically close to the end and, you know, have to try and win, uh, with, with these kind of dramatic game-winning drives, and I think they're still trying to get out of that mold. I think they they start they want to start games fast and and not start slow and have to make these games uh, so close uh, down the stretch. I think that's something they're still working on, and we, we saw them do that for the first time this season against Arizona, starting fast, you know, keeping control of the game, and you know, kind of finishing it out in the end, and then. You know, kind of the ugly, I think, you know, penalties, self-inflicted, you know, kind of gunshot wounds is still kind of an issue uh, for this team. We didn't see that against Arizona on Sunday, you know, just a few days ago. But, um, you know, up to that point, you know, it, you know, the, the first three games of the season and, uh, you know, in a lot of games last year, uh, you know, the, the holding penalties on the offensive line, uh, just DPIs and in, in, in the red zone, just kind of stuff that's very avoidable, I think is kind of, you know, hurt, hurt their chances uh, with, you know, finding rhythm and momentum. Yeah. And I think uh, that's something that they're still trying to work on. Yeah. When you look at the surface, it's hard to tell what team this is. Their wins, Cincinnati, Pittsburgh, and Arizona, nothing impressive there. And their one loss over a Drew Breesless Saints. So I think the jury still very much out on this football team, but Russell Wilson, is this the best start of his career? Where is he better? Yeah, this, you know, the, the, you know, Pete Carroll was, you know, kind of to your point saying that this is, has been Russ's best start ever. And the numbers kind of back that up. You look at his completion percentage. It's, um, you know, at like 73, uh, you know, and that's, you know, tops players who, who have at least, you know, 50 throws um, is, you know, pass rating is at like 118, which is insane. His career high, he said last year uh, was at 110. Uh, so he, he's been balling, you know, as, you know, off to as quick as, of a start as he's ever been. I think, you know, part of that has been 
uh, Brian Schottenheimer, you know, in, in his second season as, you know, the offensive coordinator for this team, letting, you know, let, letting Russ use his arm a little bit more. Um, you know, I think that they wanted to run so much last year and then just kind of use the, the play action to kind of surprise teams last year. I think they've kind of diver- diversified uh, that um, kind of offensive attack this year. They've been kind of utilizing that quick passing game, you know, like I've talked about, um, you know, you know, a lot, a big deal was made out of Doug Baldwin not being in this receiving core uh, this season, but they've had a ton of guys step up, you know, for Russ, you know, you look at uh, standout rookie DK Metcalf, uh, tight end Will Disley is an early candidate for comeback player of the year after uh, missing all but four games of his rookie season with a, you know, torn patellar tendon. Uh, those two guys are huge red zone targets uh, for Russell Wilson. Uh, you know, obviously Tyler Lockett, he's their number one guy now. Um, you know, they, they have some options there. And, you know, I think it really goes down to not, I don't think it's really so much that, that Russ has changed. I think kind of the offensive philosophy has adjusted a bit to accommodate the, the talents the Seahawks have with uh, Russell's arm. Ben, I'm, I'm, I think it's interesting what you said about Schottenheimer. For whatever reason, it feels like he's the butt of a lot of jokes nationally. Is it like that in Seattle? And or has the start by the Seahawks offensively kind of quieted that? Yeah, I, it's definitely kind of been the same thing here. I mean, you know, we've, we've kind of we kind of know what the analytics show in terms of you know, kind of diversifying your your um, your offense and not just running the ball so much. I, I think kind of uh, a big issue was that the, the Seahawks were even, you know, trying to establish the run when the run clearly wasn't working against stacked boxes. Um, and, it, you know, Shoddy is very, um, you know, firm in what he believes, uh, you know, in terms of what, you know, the run game can open up for uh the, the Seahawks offense. And I, I don't think his philosophy has, you know, changed, so to speak. I think, you know, he, um, you know, still kind of shows that front, you know, in terms of talking to the media and all that. But I, I think it's just kind of been, been the willingness to throw the ball a little more. It, I think it was kind of funny last week. Uh, Schottenheimer was kind of joking uh, with us that uh, his wife, is kind of on the, the sides of many Seahawk fans and, you know, kind of the national media and that um, they should be throwing the ball more. You know, she's kind of, you know, behind closed doors been trying to get him to kind of diverse, diversify the options a bit. But, um, but, but yeah, I think, you know, Shoddy's very firm in, in what he believes in it. And I think Pete Carroll is a guy who's always been strong with the, the run game as well. I mean, going back to the Marshall Lynch days, um, you know, earlier this decade, I, I think it's just kind of been the the willingness to, you know, to, to throw the ball more. And, you know, I think they have some, uh, you know, with the running backs, they, they have some, you know, pretty good pass catchers out of that backfield as well that have kind of aided that, you know, play action game that they've been successful with and, um, you know, finding Tyler Lockett downfield. All right, Ben Arthur of the Seattle Post-Intelligencer, thanks for joining us, previewing this Thursday night matchup, Seahawks and Rams. Should be a good one. Appreciate it, my friend. Thank you, guys. All right, coming up after a quick break, we're going to check in with one of the great baseball writers in this country, Bob Nightingale, a Radio.com insider, also USA Today Sports. 
He will tell us if the Astros are a wise bet and preview tonight's wild card game. A's and Rays, some of the lower payroll teams in the bigs. What does that say about the game today and those franchises after a quick break? We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for well-qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. 